Welcome to Hope Through Hard Stuff, a podcast from Winning at Home. Please welcome your host, speaker, and award-winning author, Steve Norman. Welcome back to Hope Through Hard Stuff. I am super excited to have as our guest today, Becca Um. This is She's here again for the second time. Becca, thanks for coming back. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be back. Okay, so because we're doing audio, um, I'm going to just would love for you to tell a little bit about your story, like growing up in your family and what it was like to kind of walk that path. And hopefully, I know your story is going to inspire other people who are trying to figure out some of the same things. Okay, yeah. My name is Rebecca. I grew up in Zealand, Michigan in a predominantly white town, um, and that is something we say in the adoption world when we say, who are you, where are you from, all those fun things. I was adopted in 2000, August 16, from Guangzhou, China. Yeah, my story kind of starts around that time. I was born in 1999 and adopted a year later. Do you want to say that my story is not everyone's adoption story. Everyone's adoption story is is very different. It's not cookie cutter. And how you identify and how you find your identity through your story is not one path. So I think that's important to remember that, yes, I'm sharing my story. It can intertwine into your story. Um, but ultimately, it's your decision to decide how you navigate that space because it is a very big space, a broad space of like, do I identify as adopted? Do I identify as ABC, my race even? So yeah, I do want to mention that. I grew up in a predominantly white family. I am the youngest of four children. So my mom and dad have two beautiful biological children. And by um, medical reasons, my mom was not able to have any more biological children. And they decided, um, I think about 10 years after, like my oldest sister was like in, in fifth grade-ish, they decided God told us we need to adopt. And they didn't know where, they didn't know who they were gonna adopt either. They just knew that God said, Carl and Deb, you need to adopt. This is a journey you need to embark on. And one thing I admire about my mom and dad is their faith. And they've always said yes to God and like, oh, this is scary, but we trust you. We yeah. trust that this plan is bigger than, than what we could ever imagine. And so they started the journey of researching who, like what countries were open if they wanted to do domestic, which is United States adoptions, or just who, what was open and, and who would let them adopt because um, there's age frames and incomes too that are a, a lot of criteria goes into adopting a child. Um, and so then they went to a few meetings. I remember my mom telling me that South Korea was a big option, Russia, and then China. And so then they landed on China and they decided to go to like a couple meetings in our area. I'm not really sure where, but the agency they adopted from was CCCAI. And I do not know what those acronyms stand for. Okay, fair enough. But I know Lily and Josh are the founders and they're based out of Colorado. Okay. And they were doing some presentations educating parents on what these children are like when they come and paperwork the criteria that do you fit this criteria and they did so they prayed about it and they decided china was was it that's where they decided that they were going to expand their family to and from right they were going to go there and then we're going to be from so like i said i am the youngest of four so they have like i said two biological kids um i love them and then they decided to start with one 
to adopt one child, and that's my other sister, Hannah. And so they decided, okay, like, we're going to try China and see how it goes. I mean, you can't really back out once the paperwork's finalized, I don't think. Um, And so she was adopted first before me, different province, different family, because a lot of people ask, oh, are you from the same biological family? Are you from—we don't even share any DNA after our DNA testing. My dad said, now, Deb, we're only going to do this one time. And so they were just going to get Hannah, and my mom was like, okay, that's great. We love that idea. And then I think, like, hours into their travel, and they hadn't even met Hannah, my dad said, file the paperwork. We're coming back. And so my— Before they even met her. Yeah. Wow. And so it's kind of interesting how you have this idea of one is is great, this is the plan, and then you're like, but it could be better. I want I want a more abundant life as I think what my parents saw was like how beautiful this addition will be why not throw in one more because it will be just so abundant right okay. and so they had her they got her um, I don't know how long they stayed and then my mom was like on the paperwork so Luckily, they did it within like a year time frame, so they didn't have to redo home checks, mm-hmm. income, family status, family interviews. So there was less strain on that end. Um, also, financially, to pay for all that again is is a lot. So it's good that they did it in a in a timely fashion. So then they decided that in China, yes, we're doing this a second time. And then they, I don't really know the whole finagling of paperwork and and ordering all the papers, whatever, money and stuff like that. And um, so the last, the first time when they went to get Hannah, my oldest siblings did not go with. Um, just, that's a long flight. Sure. It's, um, what do they say, culture shock too, to uh-huh. see a, a third world country. Um, China's very poor or was at the time and they're now up and coming in, sure. into becoming a first world country. And it's going to vary region by region and city by city. Right. Okay. Right. And so where we're from, it's pretty poor. Okay. I don't really know how poor can be $5 or poor can be $500. It's relative. Yeah. Yeah. So then they decided though the second time with me, everybody was going to go. Um, so my, my whole family, Hannah went back. Um, she says, I think she was three. She doesn't really remember much of being back in China, but we hope one day to go back together and see what our, our province is like okay. and what it's like to be in a space where you don't look different. Um, but anyways, that is how I ended up in my family was my dad said, we're only going to do this one time. And then it turned into a second time. And yeah. So were you and Hannah close growing up because they were like the bios and then the adopted kids or was everybody just like one big kind of happy bundle? We were one pretty one big happy bundle. Okay. We were, I think, had my older brother and sister been closer in age, we would have been closer. Okay. So my my oldest two siblings are, I think, like 12 months apart. So they grew up together and then... My sister was, I think, in freshman, freshman in high school when they got me. Okay. And then my brother was in eighth grade, seventh or eighth grade. Uh-huh. And then there was us okay. that were in diapers still. Okay. So it's, it was a full decade. Yes. Between both pairs. Yes. Okay. Like, I think I'm 
12 years younger than my brother. Okay. So it's it's quite an age gap. So I think if we were all, you know, two to four years apart, we'd be closer. But age is just a number. And nowadays, like, we're all married and we all have kids or want to have kids one day. And they, like, it's, it's not weird that yeah. we're this big age gap. But now we're like... Okay, this is what it is. And this is what we've always known, too. Right. Some people will say that's crazy, but we're like, is it? It's all you know. Yeah. And so it's. I feel like we're close, but Hannah and I are closest because we grew up the closest in age. And I think my oldest brother and sister will say that, too, of, like, they're close because they grew up closest together, and they had no one else. Like, we yeah, weren't yeah. there. So, yeah. 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 So what was it like growing up in a in, in a predominantly white family in a predominantly white neighborhood being a transracial adoptee? Is that yeah. is that verbiage that's okay yeah, to that say? Yeah, that is verbiage okay. that is okay and is correct. <laughs> okay. Um, so I want to say this and say I didn't know that I looked different than my mom and dad and my siblings for like seven years. Hmm. And that's like the age of awareness where kids start to develop oh, I I have dark hair, I have almond eyes, I have a flat nose. But, like, before I was seven, I would draw myself like my sister, my Mm -hmm. oldest sister, blonde hair, blue eyes, pallor skin. It wasn't until, like, seven where I was like, oh, I have dark hair, was drawing myself with dark hair. My mom watched the progression of Hannah and I's development of realizing we do look different. And the beauty of, like, my parents is they never hid it from us. Mm Um, that would have been really hard to hide. Per, like, they have blue eyes. They're 5'9 and 6'2. We are five foot, dark hair, olive skin. It would have been like, what in the world? How? You can only lie to a child so much. Um, but I was grateful that my parents never, never hid it and never lied to us, made, embraced it, and was like, this is your story. Hmm. And you weren't unwanted. You weren't unloved. They just didn't have the means to provide for you. Yeah. There also is a lot with the Chinese government where it wasn't their choice to not keep you. They Mm -hmm. had to let you go. There was no if, and, or but. Because there was a one-child policy in place at that time. Okay. Yes. And traditionally, what I hear a lot is, like, you weren't a boy, and that's why Mm -hmm. they didn't keep you, which is not necessarily true because— Chinese families pride themselves in healthy fertility and having children and what a gift it is. And maybe not from God to them, but Buddha or Mm -hmm. whomever, or just family structure. They loved having big families. They loved just, they love having children. And so when I'm told, oh, you weren't a boy and that's why they didn't keep you, I think that's where you're wrong. I think a lot of us are second daughters or second children, or third, or fourth. So that feels like an oversimplification. Yes. Okay. And there have been many families that I've connected with in adoption groups that have said, have found their biological families, which is needle and haystack for Chinese adoptees. But have she had, this one person in particular had three older siblings, sisters, and she was the fourth daughter. And the government said, you have to let her go. Mm. She can't live here anymore. So how traumatic would that have been for that family? Yeah. So, like, so traumatizing and so isolating 
right? Because you're, they have three older siblings that they'll never know. Mm. And now she does because she found them okay. by, by actually accident. She went there for her heritage tour, and they said, "Hey, like, we're trying some new DNA testing nowadays to see if you would match with a family." And she's like, "Yeah, like, I pondered the idea, never acted on it. I'm here. What?" What could go wrong? It can't hurt to look because she's pondered that idea too. And so she, she found them. And I think that's beautiful if that's something that you want to do. Um, it's not for everybody. But I was like, it's interesting when people say you weren't kept because you weren't a boy. That's not true. You mentioned a heritage tour. Talk about that. What are those and how do they work and who pays for them? Yeah. Okay. So a heritage tour is something ran by our agency, CCAI. And so their whole mission is to bring you as an adoptee back to where you're from or Mm. around that area. And you get to see your orphanage or an orphanage like yours. Um, You can meet the, we called them nannies, our caretakers. You can meet the babies there. You can see how it's ran and how it's different from America. And then, of course, you can go see the Great Wall. You can see the Terracotta Soldiers. You can see temples there because it is a very, even if it's not your religion, it's a beautiful thing to be a part of and see and see the beauty of all of the art that's in those temples. And then who pays for them is if you are from that country and it varies by agency and it varies by who you do it through. But our agency specifically does. If you were born there and adopted out of there, you pay for your flight and they pay for everything that follows. The agency does that or the government does that? The agency. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And then if my mom wanted to go back, it would be like more money. Sure. But like for Hannah and I to go, it'd be like just your flight. And have you done it? Not yet. You want to do it? Yes. And you would go together? I want to go together. I think it'd be a fun experience because I've been very okay with, not okay, but I think more, I don't know if it's adjusted or like feeling like my placement in my family was a good fit and like I mattered and I, and I, and it's very hard when you're adopted and you don't feel that way Hmm. and you always question why or what happened to your family Mm -hmm. or whatever it might be. My sister and I have talked about our adoption stories a little bit of like, it would be neat to go back together just to see what it's like to walk a road that maybe that's where you were, to see the orphanage where you probably played in and you had friends there and to eat, of course, amazing food and just see the country that your parents knew and remember that you don't physically remember. Right. You remember the trauma that came with it um, because I I hear a lot of like, you don't remember that. Mm. You're right, I don't, maybe I don't physically remember my caretaker or my orphanage, but I do remember the trauma that came with it. And yeah. there were things there that, like attachment styles. If you're traumatized, it makes it harder to attach or attach too much, whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. So, It'd be just fun to go back to to talk about our stories together and to see it kind of come full circle in a way. Even if we're not there to find our biological families, it'd just be a journey to do together of like, this is where we're from. And to tell our kids one day, yeah, this is where we're from. And it's a beautiful thing. And it's it's not something to be ashamed of or 
sad about because a lot of people find it like, oh, that's so sad. It's not that sad. Okay. It just is. It just is. And this is the story that God wrote, wrote out for me. Yeah. And I know there's a lot of babies who don't have that, but we got, we got blessed with that. Yeah. Do you, when you talk about going back, do you and your sister, you have your parents' support? Yeah. Okay. Yep. My dad says he would never go back just because of the plane ride. Okay. That was um, too much. Yes. And I think my mom would go back because we're her daughters. Sure. And she'd be like, oh, that'd be fun. But it, they, yeah, we have their support of like going back. Are there some adoptive parents who get skittish about their children taking um, a heritage tour only because like maybe they're afraid that they'll lose a part of their bond or that they're, we talked about how they identify that their their story will get reframed and that their family will change the dynamic in their family possibly for the worse. Is that a concern that some adoptive parents have? I haven't, I haven't heard that okay, part. Gotcha. I've heard a lot of support behind finding birth families gotcha. going back. Okay. Like there was a documentary on Netflix, I think it was called Found. Okay. And they ended up doing 23andMe, and these girls ended up being cousins. And then they were like, oh, well, maybe we could find our, our birth family. So they went on this journey together that I won't say what the end was. <laughs> okay. But there was a lot of support, but also the anxiety of mm. they the parents didn't want their child to be let down. Right. Of, okay, you meet them. What do you do with that information? Right. You know? So I that's what I've thought of, like, okay, I could find them, but what do I do with that? Yeah. And so many times I think about, about that reunion if it did happen. But what if they don't want to meet? Because everybody wants a happy ending. Everybody right. wants it to be like, oh, they met. They had a beautiful reunion. Let's wrap it up in a bow and make right. it seem so beautiful. And oftentimes when you hear about like parental relationships with their child that were estranged, they don't want to meet. Right. They don't want to reconcile. So with that, like when it's your biological family, you don't know what they what their expectation is. Or, and there's no way to fully prepare for that. Right. And like, even if you meet them and it's like a, a, a good meeting, like you had a mutual understanding of you wanted to meet, but do you want to meet again? Do you want to FaceTime? Like you don't know what that expectation would be like. Okay. There's a lot of different layers to it. Yeah. A lot of like, is it best that we know each other? Is it best that we don't? And I've lived my whole life content with not knowing and never knowing but it is hard sometimes because you wonder like where you got statures your looks from um even the bigger things like medical history you'd want to know sometimes it's scary that's very scary not knowing medical things and just seeing if you have other siblings out there too or nieces and nephews out there that you have no idea that they exist because they don't know you exist yeah, yeah. Um, because also there's a conversation of they don't talk about you. Hmm. They're not supposed to because what they did was illegal. Okay. And they should have never had you. Hmm. So there's just a lot of layers of nuance and complexity with that. Yeah. Now, it seems like the advent of technology, like 50 years ago, international adoptions like weren't even really a thing. And right. so for like the advent of email, the fact that like global air travel became cheaper. And now like for where you're mentioning DNA testing and 
social media, allowing chat groups. How how has your journey of being able to meet other people through groups who share your experience, how has that been helpful for you or how has that stretched your journey of just your own understanding and your own identity? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so there's a lot of groups, even in the Michigan area, adopting. There's a Grand Rapids area or like group, but then adopting also was started by our agency, CCI, and the park. So these are specific though for Chinese adoptees. Okay. And then also I know the agency has branched out to other countries. Okay. So there is other resources for other kids of other ethnicities. Um, but these are the ones that I found because I'm a Chinese adoptee. Yeah. Um, and so during COVID, I decided like, I think it was like transracial adoptees just just talking about their journeys. What is like being an, a, an adoptee during COVID because of being Chinese and the mm. COVID coronavirus, Chinese sure. virus, we started it, right? Um, to talk about what it's like being an adoptee in a predominantly white or different ethnicity town and what that journey has been like for all of us in different cities, different towns, talking about our family structures, where a lot of our experiences have been the same and different or the same in different towns. Yeah. Um, or the same from from just like what has been said or, or hasn't been said, but you know it's it's there, right? People notice you're Asian and it's you started the virus. So Not what, really though. What kind of themes did you explore together? Family structures. A lot of us were from predominantly white towns and white families. School systems, what it's like growing up in a school system that is also predominantly white. Siblings, also what that looks like, because not everybody just has Chinese adoptees. They might have, like my family, biological children before that. How COVID affected us during that time. Then there was another second part of like meet on Zoom. It was all Zoom. And talk about biological families finding them and that's when I heard about that one woman that found her biological family what that journey is like for us and how to start that journey if you're interested in it um, because like you said it's very complex and there's so many layers of like where to start what to do what do I submit what adoption papers do I need um, what ag agency is really good or in my area of where I'm supposedly from because where your paperwork might say you're from, you might not even be from there mm -hmm. because a lot of families traveled or the person that relinquished you into the system wasn't your mom or dad. Um, oftentimes it wasn't um, because there was a lot of shame and guilt in leaving their child somewheres. And that takes a lot of strength to let them go, mm -hmm. to never know yeah. what happened to them. So most times they didn't do it themselves. But those are the topics that we talked about and have joined together, feeling less alone and less isolating. It was a nice space to be in of like, you're not alone. And my journey isn't that odd. And a lot of, you know about them, right? You hear of all the girls and, and boys that were in your group being adopted by similar families, but you didn't get connected until now because there's Zoom and all these things mm -hmm. going on. So that was fun. That was a good time. And I still see like we have a, a Discord chat and I see like new members starting and sharing their journey. And that's that's really cool to just see like them find the community too as well and get connected and get involved and, and share their story because it's a really safe space to do it in. 
Did your sister jump in as well, or has she been not quite as enthusiastic about kind of connecting with other adoptees? Um, no, she hasn't joined, and and not not really. Okay. And I don't think it's diff- even though we're do- adopted in the same like time frame ish, like two ish years. It was very different when she was like in high school to when I was in high school. Talk about that. Where, like, I feel like for me being more like open about it too helped, but also didn't help because every everyone knew you're adopted anyways. But I I feel like during the time she was in high school, not a lot of people knew about these resources and there was lack of education or not even the resource to to do it or to have it or to talk about it. Where when COVID happened, they were like, oh, let's like push this for them and be for the adoptees where then it kind of felt like their focus was to adopt out as many children out of the country than get them a community outside of being adopted, if that makes sense. Okay, okay. Um, so I, I think that's where it was different, where, like, there wasn't a huge push within our communities that were there. Because I don't even think the park started until, like, she graduated high school. Okay. And um, adopting, too. Okay. So it's kind of like she could get involved, but with who? I yeah. mean, there were other adoptees in our school, but they weren't Chinese, which is it, that's okay, but it's different when you have that one thing in common because right. a lot of then things fall under that family structure, where you're from, schools, your looks even. So were so, there yeah. any other Asian adoptees in your high school class, or were you, like, the only one? I think for each of us, we're, like, the only ones. What was I like? You know, like I said, I never knew that I was I was Chinese until I was seven, it just kind of was something that you knew. You knew you looked different, and you knew that everybody knew you looked different. Um, and it just was what it was. However, our town is sees color, but wants to pretend they don't see color. Mm. And I know that there was hurtful things that did happen during that that does happen still because racism is still a thing and always will be a thing. Yeah, some people weren't kind towards people of other ethnicities in our schools, and then bullying happens, and sometimes the school system doesn't do anything about it because they don't see color, um, which is one of the most racist things you could ever say to somebody because that diminishes that we are a person of color. Hmm. And other things Because when you say, sentence, I don't see color, what you're effectively saying, even if you don't mean it, is I don't see you. Right. And your uniqueness doesn't matter or register for me. And that, yes. Okay. Yes. And so living in a town, in a school system, is hurtful to you. And then you want to go somewhere where, like the next town over, that has people that look like you because you won't feel as alone. Rebecca, if you could go, knowing what you know now, if you could go back in time, mm-hmm. what would you say to your teachers, the administration, and your classmates so that they would have operated in a way differently than how they ended up operating? I think specifically, like, who I would tell would be administration and teachers because friends are at 
like your friends aren't your superiors. Mm -hmm. So you can have genuine, honest conversations with them without being suspended or like they could decide not to be your friend. But that might be the worst thing that happens. Or like if it's a superior, there's a boundary that you're you. You should not say anything, Hmm. which I will never raise my children that way. Speak up for what you believe in and speak up if something's wrong. So that power dynamic made it difficult for you to advocate for yourself to teachers and administrators. Yeah. Okay. And I would say specifically to leadership or anyone really that is in the education system that isn't a student, you can't change someone's, like, your perception of their skin color should not be how their personality is hmm. or or what their personality should not be where I should be more quiet and reserved and not talk so much. Simply because you're Chinese. Yes. And things like that, the expectations of what we look like should be, we should be quiet. We shouldn't speak up. We shouldn't stand up for ourselves. Or you get the side of, they need to be more outgoing. They need to be more social. Mm. But you like that we're reserved. But then you don't like it when we are. So it's a mixed message. Right. It's be more like who I think you're supposed to be, but also be more like me and what I want you to be. Right. Okay. And that's that's not okay. Race or not, you can't make a, a child, a student, Feel like they need to be something that they're not. Let them be who they are. Talk if they want to. Not talk if they don't want to. Don't assume they're good at math because they're Asian. And certain things like that where there are stereotypes that I think there's a precedent, right? We're supposed to be a doctor, a lawyer, whatever. Maybe we want to go into the trade. Right. Maybe we just want to answer phones or or have like a stepping block to something but don't have these expectations because of someone's skin color gotcha rebecca what did your parents do well in that season of kind of difficulty and challenge for you when you're in high school moving me out of a school system okay that is predominantly white so you changed schools mid high school um middle school okay yep um so that was the best thing my my parents could have done, and I wish that, you know, like I said, there wasn't many opportunities for adopting groups, adopt adoptees groups and stuff like that. And same with school. There wasn't a lot of options before that to move. You either went to, like, three in this area, okay. um, which I do wish we went to the two, either Holland Public or West Ottawa, okay. because it is more diverse. Sure. Um, but we didn't live even in the realm of okay. that. Gotcha. So I ended up moving to a charter school. Okay. And it was very diverse. Gotcha. But with a lot of adopted kids. Yeah. And so one of my highlights of my eighth grade year was they did pods. And so that was like the mm. older group hanging out with like younger kids. Cool. And there was this one student named Kate and she was a Chinese adoptee. And I, she reminded me of younger me. Hmm. Just her energy, not just by looks, just who she was, just happy, bright, like just so awesome. And um, her mom is white as well. And so one day they had like a family event at school 
And she's like, you know what Kate calls you? I was like, what? My Chinese friend, Becca. And I was like, that is awesome. Like, I, it's an honor to meet you. And it's an honor to know your daughter. So that was so cool to just do that. And then there was another um, student there named Grace. And she was Chinese, too. And, and it was just fun to be in a space of, of girls like me who have families like me. And they're in this town, the same town. So they know that, you know, I am older and you'll be okay. This is a beautiful thing. And it's really neat, too, because Kate, I never told Kate I was adopted. She knew Hmm. because she's adopted. And I was like, isn't that a beautiful thing that your mom and my mom never hid it from us? They never made us feel ashamed about that. And, And it was just neat to, like, be with her, meet her mom, and just, yes, I am Kate's Chinese friend, Becca. And that that's awesome. So that was that was special to leave a school system that didn't allow that free space and moving to a school where it did and it was very welcomed to be a person of color or adopted or whatever it might be it was very much okay okay Rebecca what other as as we wrap up what other words of encouragement do you have either to adoptees or adoptive parents who mm. are trying to just figure out what the next step in their journey towards uh, identity and self-discovery and self-awareness and self-advocacy can look like For adoptees I would say own that identity hmm. whatever it might be own that identity and just be proud of it be like as as shameful, as sad as it's supposed to be, be proud. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, there might be a lot of hurt in there, but be proud of, of your story and the uniqueness of it and the complexity of it and, and the beauty that adoption is and that it is a gift that not a lot of people take advantage of. And maybe your family structure might not be amazing even though you're adopted, but be proud of who you are and what your story is and what it could be for somebody else, your children one day, your friends next to you. And then for parents, let your kids embrace that identity and don't stop them from from exploring communities because it'll make them, your child, brighter and happier because they'll be in a safe space to share who they are and what their story is. And and yes, you're their parent, but they can't share everything with you. And there are just some, some things you won't understand. So with that, find a community, though, of adoptive parents that have adopted as well to talk about what that's like and enter that space. And maybe, just maybe, their, their kids will be adopted and then your kid, their kids can hang out with your kids and you can have a parent hang out too. So maybe that can happen, but let them find their purpose and identity in what it means to be adopted, and it's not clear-cut for either one. Those are just great, great words to land on. Uh, Rebecca, thank you so much for your time and for sharing uh, a story that is, is deeply personal and also, I think, really inspiring and encouraging to people who are going to be tuning in. Perfect. Well, thank you for having me. It's always our pleasure. You've been listening to Hope Through Hard Stuff. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening to Hope Through the Hard Stuff. If you liked what you heard, please remember to subscribe to it, rate and review it, and then share it with others. Winning at Home offers hope through counseling and coaching, 
motivational speaking, community events, and other media resources. If you believe in what we do and want to support us in our mission, consider making a donation at winningathome.com.